0: Hey, this is David Merrill, pastor of the Well Church. I would like to first thank you for downloading the app and listening to what God is doing through the life and ministry of the Well Church. I would also ask that before you listen to this message, that you would pray that God not only continues to transform lives through this ministry, but also that as you hear the word of God proclaimed, pray that the Holy Spirit would convict you in areas that your life has not been given over to God, empower you to repent and turn but also embolden you to be doers of the word and not simply hearers in order that you become a light in your homes, in your schools, in your workplaces, and even in your local church body. Let us be radically in love with Jesus and radically in love with his people. Once again, I just thank you for listening and may God bless you abundantly. All right. Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. Everybody have a good, good Christmas. Awesome. What a year, huh? All right. We're not going to do a normal uh reading today. Normally we read uh one of the passages from Hebrews because today we are doing something a little different. We're taking a little break from Hebrews for this morning and um we're talking about something else. So, let me pray and then we're going to get into it. Lord God, I just uh give you this time, Lord. I just pray that I I won't waste anyone's time this morning. Lord, uh, may we come to your scriptures with fresh eyes. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal to us what you'd like to show us through what we're about to read this morning, uh, what we're going to study, almost to fall in love with your word and with you all the more. Um, So I just dedicate this message to you, Lord. I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you take away all that is of me and um, take what I've prepared. And I hope that it's a blessing to these people. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we've been working through the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews is all about how Jesus is better. It's kind of the thesis statement of the book of Hebrews. He's better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He's better than Moses. The list goes on. So Hebrews spends a lot of time comparing Jesus to things from the Old Testament. But I'm willing to bet that some of us have, at least maybe not now, but at some point in our lives, have said, isn't the Old Testament just about laws and regulations? and sacrifices, and long lists of names, and things that don't really matter anymore. It's kind of, you know, once Jesus came, the Old Testament, that's just Old Testament, right? We've got the New Testament now. We don't need the Old. Out with the Old, in with the New. But the Old Testament is all about Jesus. So this morning, what we're going to talk about is types and shadows. That's the uh, title of the message, if you will. Um, Do you have the slides pulled up back there, Alan? It's just just my cool title slide. It's not a big deal. (laughs) Types and Shadows. There we go. Um, So yeah, uh, the Old Testament is all about Jesus. Let me read you a few scriptures here. Luke 24, verse 27. uh, Jesus is with his disciples, and then it says, Beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Again, in Luke 24, uh, same scene, a little later, Jesus tells them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So the entire Old Testament, even the Psalms, King David was writing about Jesus when he uh, talked about him as, as the, uh, you know what, I had it this morning. There was a Psalm I just read this morning. It was in Psalm 118 um, where Jesus or where David talks about the rock So even the Psalms are about him. Uh, John 5.39, you pour over the scriptures. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees now. He says, because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. What were the scriptures that the Pharisees had? The Old Testament. John 5.46, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. So we've just come through the Christmas season the advent season uh leading up to christmas and just like in the advent season we are looking forward to the coming of the messiah in a similar fashion uh the old testament is sort of like a great big advent season the whole old testament is sort of a looking forward to his coming it's full of um types and shadows what do i mean by types and shadows um a type is a, another word for a copy or a model or a shadow of something and how does a shadow work? You can see my shadow over there on the drum box. A shadow it has the form of something, the thing casting it, but it is not the thing itself. Obviously, Peter Pan might argue with you on that one. I don't know what. I don't know why I said that. Um, it's not the thing itself. It's meant to point to the thing, the thing casting it. Right. So uh, we're going to give you a little preview for next week. I'm gonna, I am gonna. hope I'm not stealing from David's Hebrews 9 sermon, but um, we just want to look at Hebrews 9 real quick because it kind of gives you a cool picture of what this looks like. So Hebrews 9 verse 23 says, Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands, made with hands, only a model of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. So we see in this passage, in, the, in verse 23, uh, it talks about the copies of the things in the heavens, um, but then the true heavenly things have to be purified with a better sacrifice. So you have right there just an image of the, the temple, the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, all these things that were set up in the camp. These were just copies of the true heavenly things. And um, Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, which is only a model or a type or a shadow of the true one. He entered into heaven itself. And uh, even the high priest is a model. Uh, It says in verse 25 that the high priest had to offer himself many times with the blood of another, but Jesus had to enter one time. So the high priest himself is a a model or a type or a copy. We've talked about this a lot already in this series of the true high priest, which is Jesus. So Hebrews does a great job of pointing out a lot of these things, these types and shadows and links between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, But there's a lot of other examples In the Bible of this sort of, the term is typology. And um, a lot of these come in the form of people. So for example, all the way back at the beginning, um, Adam is a type of Christ. Uh, David has talked about this before, about the covenant representative, so I won't go too far into it. Um, But this idea that Adam is the representative of the tribe of mankind. So because Adam sinned, we have all sinned because we are under him as our representative. So in, in that sense, he is a model or a type of Christ. Because Christ becomes the new covenant representative for us. Um, Romans 5.14 very specifically links them together. It says that, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. And in uh, 1 Corinthians 15.21 and 22, it says, for Since death came through a man, that would be Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So Adam is a type of Christ. There's a few other, there's lots of people in the Bible that can be, I'm just going to touch a few of them. Um, Jonah is one that is pointed out in Matthew 12, verse 40. It says, for as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. But you're going to see a pattern in this. Um, you know, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. Jesus was in the earth for three days and three nights. Obviously, Jesus is much better than Jonah because Jonah ran away from his mission. And then even when he finally fulfilled his mission, he was complaining about it all along the way. So what you see in these models and these types is always a, a pointing to what is greater. You, you always see flaws in the model. You always see issues with the model with Adam, with Jonah. Um, another one is is David. King David is a uh, type of Christ as well. Um, he was a king and Christ is the king of kings. David was a shepherd and Jesus is the good shepherd. That's what we call him. That's what the Bible calls him. And uh, Jesus, uh, David was born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. There's a lot of parallels between King David and Jesus. But you know, there's one thing about King David that I hear a lot and it's kind of a, become a pet peeve for me and I just want to uh, touch on it really quickly. I hear a lot of people say or indicate or think that David is supposed to be a type for us. They say, you need to go out and slay your giant. Just be brave like King David and have faith and you can slay your giants. But that's not, that's not what King David is a model for. In this scene, um, you know the scene, the Israelites are cowering behind the trenches. David goes out and slays Goliath. We're not David. We're the Israelites. We're the ones that are hiding behind the trenches because we're too scared to go out there and fight. So, uh, so King David is a type of Jesus. Jesus is the one that goes out and defeats the impossible giant for us. So we're not David. I just wanted to throw that out there. Anyway, so there's others. There's Moses, Melchizedek. We've talked about Melchizedek. And there's lots of personal types of Christ. Um, But today, this morning, I mainly wanted to look at some of the more symbolic types of Christ that we find in the Bible. And I think these ones are cool because they are very specifically pointed out later on in the Bible. So we're going to start in the wilderness. Did you guys know that the, I I learned this recently, the book of Numbers in the original Hebrew, the name for that book is Bemidbar, and that actually translates as into the wilderness. Isn't that a a way cooler name? Like a lot more people would read Numbers if it was called into the wilderness instead of Numbers like a math book. So sorry, the wilderness. Um, We're we're in the wilderness, okay? We're going to talk about manna. So Exodus 16, just to set the scene, the Israelites have been pulled out of Egypt and they are wandering through the wilderness and they are hungry. Exodus 16 verse 1 says the entire Israelite community departed from Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had left the land of Egypt, the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. Verse Over to verse 17. So the Israelites did this. Some gathered a lot, some a little. And when they measured it by courts, the person who gathered a lot had no surplus, and the person who gathered a little had no shortage. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. So manna... Um, it looked like dew on the ground. It was this kind of fluffy white, you know, saw the picture a minute ago, this fluffy white bready stuff that gathered on the ground. And they actually called it manna because they had no idea what it was. Manna means what is it? So how is this a type of Jesus? Well, let's flip over to John chapter 6, verse 31. Jesus says to his disciples, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness just as it is written he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So that's the manna. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, in verse 32, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So just a quick comparison between manna and Jesus. Um, manna, it came down from the sky each day and gathered like dew on the ground. Jesus came down from heaven. Christmas. Uh, The manna had to be gathered up every day, and Jesus, we have to seek him every day. He's our daily bread. Uh, When they saw it, again, the people wondered, what is it? That's the word manna means, what is it? And so they didn't recognize it as food. Um, And in the same way, John 1.10 says that he was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. So the Pharisees, lots of people, they didn't recognize Jesus for what he was couple other comparisons. Um, the Israelites grumbled about the manna. Numbers 11, verse 4. I love the way this is phrased in the Christian Standard Bible. It says, The riffraff among them had a strong craving for other food. The Israelites wept again and said, Who will feed us meat? We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt, along with the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing to look at but this manna. And in a similar fashion, in John chapter 6, verse 41, it says, therefore, the Jews started grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They had the bread and just didn't want it. One last parallel. Um, Jesus himself says this one in John six forty-nine. the same scene where he's, he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, uh, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. So that's The type, you eat the manna, you still die. It's an imperfect model. But in John 6, 48, actually right before that, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And then jumping over to verse 50, he says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, and if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So there you go. Jesus is the better fulfillment of the model represented by the manna. Okay, another one. We're going to look at the rock of Horeb, the rock that uh, Moses strikes to bring the water out. So back in the wilderness, uh, Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me? Moses replied to them. Why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? In a little while, they will stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go on ahead of the people, and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand, and go. I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it, and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. You know, it's easy to make fun of the Israelites. I had this moment while I was actually preparing this sermon. I was sitting there reading these passages, and I was going, man, what a bunch of crybabies. What do they want? God used miracles to pull them out of Egypt, and they've seen the glory of God in the cloud of fire and the whirlwind. They've seen the sea split open, and they're still complaining about food and water. But, you know, they're actually really just—we give them a hard time, but they're acting out of God's given design. I mean. They're displaying their hunger and thirst. Even the Israelites themselves in these in these uh, stories are a model for us, in that we have hunger and we have thirst and we need God to provide for us. So I think we need to give them a break. And I mean, sure, their hearts their hearts were probably hard and bitter. But I think in a, in a way, God still loved to hear them crying out for water because He knew that He was going to provide it. Um, so. Thanks for pulling the picture back up. This rock, they believe they've actually found this rock. Uh, This is a picture of the actual rock that archaeologists believe is the Rock of Horeb. It looks kind of small in the picture, but that rock is about four stories high. And what's interesting about this rock is that there's this split down the middle, and the erosion patterns on the rock and on the rocks around it indicate a massive volume of water coming up from under the rock right where that fissure is and uh, water flowing over the rocks around it. And this is in a very arid uh, region of, I believe it's Saudi Arabia, where there's only about half an inch of rainfall every year. And there's no erosion patterns on any of the rocks around it. So they believe they found it. So this is the rock. It's pretty cool. So how is this a type of Christ? Well, 1 Corinthians 10 has the key. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1 says, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, they all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, that would be the manna, and uh, they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So there's another parallel scene that happens in the book of Numbers, uh, Numbers 20, Verses 2 through 12, it says, There was no water for the community. So again, we've, we've come to a very similar situation. So the people assembled against Moses and Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses, and they said, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our livestock to die here? Sound familiar? Why have you led us up from Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain, figs, vines, and pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting. They fell face down and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord spoke to Moses, take the staff and assemble the community. You and your brother Aaron are to speak to the rock while they watch. Notice he said to speak to the rock. He didn't say to strike it this time. And it will yield its water. You will bring out water for them from the rock and provide drink for the community and their livestock. So what does Moses do? Verse 9, it says, Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron summoned the assembly in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, so all good so far, Moses is following God's instructions, but then Moses says, listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock for you? And then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff. So that abundant water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. Verse 12, but the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me to demonstrate my holiness in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. So why did God get angry? I've heard satisfying explanations of this before. Like, Oh, well, Moses was, had a temper, and he didn't do what God commanded. And I I think that is true. That is part of why God got angry. Moses disobeyed God. God said to speak to the rock. Moses struck it with his staff. He got angry with the people, and he struck it. But I think there's a whole other layer going on here that I just learned recently, and I think is super cool. So the rock, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 10, is a type of Christ. And as a type of Christ, the rock only had to be struck one time. Christ was struck in the side with a spear when he was on the cross. And you know what came out? Water. Water gushed out of the side of Jesus. If that's not another indication of the parallel here. However, after that, the blessings of salvation are attained through just speaking with Jesus. Speaking through the Holy Spirit with Jesus. And you receive the blessings of salvation. But so Moses ruined the type because he was supposed to speak to the rock, which was a type of Jesus, but instead he struck it again. And I think that's part of why God was angry about this, because Moses kind of ruined this type and model that God was setting up. But note, this is interesting, that God's willingness to still provide was there. He still had the rock, the water come out of the rock, even though Moses didn't do it properly. And God still showed his faithful love, even though Moses was disobedient. And thank goodness for that. So that's the rock. Next one we're going to talk about is the bronze serpent. This is a crazy one. This is one of my favorite scenes from the Bible. I hesitate to say that. It's it's one of the most fascinating scenes in the Bible to me. And this painting kind of demonstrates why. It's intense. Let's read about it. Numbers chapter 21. Still in the wilderness. It says, Then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom. But the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. So what's the problem here? The problem is that the people were complaining. Again, they were speaking out against God. And more than It wasn't just about them complaining. It was that they were speaking out against God and Moses and not trusting in God. They were disobeying God. So, what happens in verse six? it says, "Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people. I had to double check this one because I didn't think snakes could be poisonous I've, I thought they had to be venomous, so I thought it might have been a translation error. there's a you know poisonous is something you eat, venomous is something that bites you. But when I was studying this, I realized that the actual original uh Hebrew word here for that they've translated as poisonous in the Christian standard Bible actually is flaming, and the, a lot of scholars believe that that the They were called flaming serpents because when they bite you, it hurts a lot, (laughs) and uh, that's why. But you know what? I was thinking about this, and I thought, how wild would that be if God sent actual snakes that were on fire to bite people? I mean, maybe. We don't know. It'd be a lot more intense. So I want you to picture snakes on fire for the rest of the scene, okay? Okay. So the Lord sent flaming snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. Many Israelites died. So what's the consequence So, the problem? The people were complaining. They were speaking out against God. The consequence is death. Verse 7. The people then came to Moses, and they said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Now they know. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And so Moses interceded for the people. So what's the solution? Moses intercedes. It's part of the solution. Second part of the solution, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and he mounted it on a pole. And whenever someone was bitten, and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. Isn't this wild? This is such a crazy scene. How is this a type of Christ? Well, it's kind of obvious, I guess, maybe, but we're going we're gonna to dig through it anyway. Uh, John, 3, 4, John chapter 3, verse 14, very clearly points out what's going on here. John 3 says, uh, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Let's look at the parallel here. What was the problem? They were grumbling. They were complaining. They were speaking out against God. What is our problem? Sin. Just like the Israelites, we speak out and act out against God. We live in rebellion. We are born sinful. Um, there's none righteous, not even one. I think that's Romans six twenty six. Maybe I, I don't know why I'm looking at David. He doesn't know. <laughs> um, so that's the problem. What's the consequence? Death. Romans 3.23. I do know this one. Romans 3.23 says the wages of sin is death. So then what's the solution? If we look at the parallel between the model and the reality, the solution then was for Moses to intercede for the people. The solution today, who do we know who intercedes for us? Yeah, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Hebrews 7.25, I don't think this one's on the slides, but uh, it says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. So that's another type right there. Moses was actually acting as a type of Christ when he was interceding for the Israelites. And then the other part of the solution is that you simply look to Christ, just like they looked at the bronze serpent hanging on a pole, and you're saved from death. It's quite simple, really. It's, it, this, is, this is the gospel portrayed in the book of Numbers. Something else I learned while researching this, just an interesting little aside, is that the bronze serpent later became an idol. I didn't know this. 2 Kings 18 verse 4 says, he, this is King Hezekiah, one of the good kings. Uh, He removed the high places. He shattered the sacred pillars, and he cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses had made. For until then, the Israelites were burning incense to it. And it is called Nehushtan. It was called that. So they had turned this bronze snake into an idol, and they were burning incense to the snake, the image of the snake. And I don't, I'm not going to say anything about the catholic church however um i'm not tearing it down but i do know that one thing that they do is on good friday they have the veneration of the cross and this is a ceremony in which the the congregants and the clergy are um they come forward and they kneel before the cross and they kiss it and so just as a word of caution um these types and shadows even the cross itself the bronze serpent, all these things, they're never meant to be mistaken for the real thing. They're never meant to be worshipped or given um, such glory and honor of themselves. They're always meant to point us to something that is real. They're always meant to point us towards Christ. So I just wanted to say that. It's just a word of caution. You know, that's what they did with the bronze serpent. I've seen people wearing crosses as like a talisman to ward off evil. You know, you keep the, the necklace on and you feel safe. So let's just be cautious when we study these types and never mistake them for the real. A couple more here. Um, the Passover lamb. So this goes actually back to before the wilderness. So this is before God pulled the Israelites out of Egypt. Uh, and so what he did was he instructed each family to take a lamb and to slaughter it. And they would paint the blood on their door. So God was going to send the angel of death through to strike down every firstborn male. And this was the final tenth plague. Uh, This was a judgment against Pharaoh in his stubbornness and his hardness of heart. So that's what they did. The Israelites would slay their lamb. They would kill it. They would take the blood, paint it on the doorpost, and then they were safe. When the angel of death came through, he would pass over their house. That's why it's called Passover, because they were protected by the blood of the lamb. How is this a type of Christ? Well, 1 Corinthians 5.7 says, For Christ, there at the end of the verse, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This one's a bit more obvious, but it's no less amazing. Because Christ has become our Passover lamb, so his blood is now on our doorposts. And death itself passes over us. This is amazing. We're free from the wrath and judgment of God because Christ is our Passover lamb. And God set up this entire thing with the original Passover as a huge signpost pointing us towards the gospel, towards the reality of where we are today. Okay, that one is a little quicker. I've got one more to cover. Um, The temple veil. What is the temple veil? The temple veil was this huge curtain that separated the priests from the holy of holies separated them from the inner sanctuary. Um, We're going to read Exodus 26, which talks about it briefly and what it is. In Exodus 26, uh, verse 31, God is giving instructions, and he says, you are to make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finally spun linen with a design of cherubim worked into it. Hang it on four gold-plated pillars of acacia wood that have gold hooks and that stand on four silver bases. Hang the curtain under the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony there behind the curtain. So the curtain will make a separation for you between the holy place and the most holy place. So this curtain was a literal barrier between the people and the presence of God, and it was meant to protect people. If a priest went in through the curtain without the proper ceremony, without the proper timing, without the proper uh, cleansing, the high priest could only go in there once a year to make intercession for the people. If anyone else went in there, poof, dead. So how is this a type of Christ? Let's flip over to the book of Matthew in the New Testament. In Matthew 27, this is the end of the crucifixion scene. It says... But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked, and the rocks were split. We could stop there, but I'm going to go on because the rest of the scene is amazing. It says, The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection. They entered the holy city. And they appeared to many. And when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and all these things that had happened, they were terrified. Duh, I'd be terrified. And he said, truly this man was the Son of God. So when Jesus dies, he gives up his last breath, and that divider in the temple is torn right down the middle. Well, it doesn't say right down the middle, but that's what I assume. Another quick preview from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be getting there in the next few weeks, but let's look at Hebrews chapter 10. This talks about this as well. 10:19 says, "Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh." And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in assurance, full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. So the temple veil itself is a model. It's a copy of Jesus' body. It says it's it's his flesh in Hebrews 10.20. Um, but it's more than that, too. It, Jesus himself passed through the veil. He entered the Holy of Holies, not the copy. He didn't pass through that, he didn't pass through that. He passed through the real veil. Uh, Hebrews 4:14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. So as Jesus did that, The real veil that this big thick curtain was just a model of, a copy of, the real veil was torn. And uh, this is the biggest one. Out of all the ones I've covered this morning, to me, this is the biggest. This is what it's all about. This is why Christmas is so significant. It's why we put so much stock in Jesus' birth and so much hope in his birth because he was born in order to do this. He was born to let himself be killed in the most torturous way possible, to be completely separated from the presence of God the Father and the Holy Spirit, in which he had perfect communion and community, to be cut off completely, which for him was a worse torture than all the lashings and all the beatings. He did all this in order for that divider, the real divider, between us and the presence of God to be broken. And then, as in Hebrews 4.16, it says, Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. You couldn't approach the throne of grace with boldness before this. You would die. But now, because that veil is torn, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. That's Hebrews 4.16. So that's really all I have this morning. Um, so, just kind of to conclude and wrap up, if the, the band wants to come up, we're going to take communion here in a minute. But uh, just as a way of concluding, I just want to say that, that it has always been all about Jesus. And it will always be all about Jesus. The whole Bible is one unified story that leads towards Him. So, what I want to encourage you guys to do is to dig into your Bibles, the whole thing. Read the book of Numbers, even if it has a boring name. Uh, read the Old Testament with fresh eyes and, and start looking for Jesus because he's everywhere. And, um, you know, he's your rock that you can drink from. When you're thirsty, like the Israelites, you're crying out in the wilderness and you're thirsty because you don't know what to turn to. Everything else you've tried, it just turns up dry. He's your rock. He is the blood on your doorpost that protects you from God's wrath. He is the Passover lamb who was slain. He is the manna, the bread from heaven. He is the bronze serpent on a pole that you can just look at and you'll be saved from the fiery flaming serpents of death.